If you've got a Bible, do me a courtesy. Uh, turn to the book of 1 Kings. We'll be in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Uh, and we'll be in a bunch of different portions of both of those chapters because I think collectively it's like 150 verses. Uh, and I don't have time to go through all of them. Uh, so we're going to kind of just get a sample of these two chapters. Uh, but as you're turning to 1 Kings chapter 5, I wonder if you've considered the different ways that information can be communicated. Uh, you know, when we think about the relay of information, we tend to think that it gets done generally through speaking, uh, whether that's through the written word or through the spoken word. And so if you want to learn something, the tendency is, well, let me buy a book on it or listen to a podcast about it or go attend a lecture about it. We think that information, uh, truth claims, ideas are communicated primarily through words, whether they're captured on the page in ink or whether they're captured on an audio recording in sound. And yet it seems, as you look through human history, that there are more than simply verbal and literary ways to communicate ideas, to communicate truth. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, there's a college about 45 minutes from here in Lakeland called Florida Southern uh, that some of you have been to, some of you are currently going to, uh, and it's this liberal arts school that uh, is I'm sure well-known for a lot of things, but one of the things that it's well-known for is the fact that many of the buildings on its campus were constructed by an architect named Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright is just known to be one of the great architects in the last hundred years. His personal life is insane. There were like murders in his mansion, and he's, he's basically like a movie waiting to happen. Um, but from an architectural perspective, he is widely respected and just considered to be somebody who was a master at his craft. But his masterpiece, the, the Mona Lisa of Frank Lloyd Wright, is unfortunately not Florida Southern. Uh, the masterpiece of Frank Lloyd Wright is this building in upstate Pennsylvania called Falling Water. And we don't name our buildings anymore. Um, that's still a thing over in the United Kingdom where the homes have names. They don't have street addresses generally. Uh, when you ask somebody, where do you live? I live in Pollock's house or I live in um, Barlanic's house or, or whatever it might be. So Frank Lloyd Wright constructed this home for a friend that he called Falling Water. That was what he named it. Uh, and it's, it's this real, I mean, beautiful building to look at. Um, but as you look at the building, uh, if you know nothing about Frank Lloyd Wright, it's just a really impressive home. Uh, but the more that you kind of understand about him, this building that he's built, it was meant to embody and communicate some of these ideas that he was committed to. It was meant to be a visual demonstration of his convictions about the way that people should interact with the world. And so he believed that when humans built something and, and placed it in a natural setting, that it should look as though it were really a part of the created world that's around it. He doesn't like these buildings that stick out like a sore thumb. He would hate that thing on 60 that's just really tall, the tall glass skyscraper that's never been used. He would despise that because it just stands out like a sore thumb. And in his philosophy, in his way of understanding the way that people relate to the world, he wanted buildings to be constructed in such a way that they looked like they were part of the natural world from which they sprung. So it's called Falling Water because it's built on a waterfall that runs through the building. And you look at the colors of the building and they match the world around it. He's communicating ideas, not with his words, but with this building that he's built. Uh, one of the most famous buildings in the United States is called the Winchester Mystery House. It was built by the wife of the man who started Winchester Rifles, and he passed away from tuberculosis. 
uh, and she got really, really paranoid. Uh, And she started consulting spirit mediums and psychics who told her that the ghosts of everybody who died from her husband's rifles were going to haunt her if she didn't build a special ghost house to keep them out. So she took her millions and millions of dollars and built a ghost house out in California. It's got 161 rooms. Um, It's got 40 bedrooms, and she would sleep in a different one every single night so the ghosts wouldn't find her, and one working toilet (laughs) in the entirety of the house. The point being, what she constructed was an embodiment of what she believed about the world. She didn't have to say anything. I built this, and it reflects what I think. Or maybe you've heard about postmodernism. as this philosophical movement that says that at its core, reality doesn't make sense. Life is a contradiction. There's no meaning in the world other than what we project onto it. That's not just something you're going to hear from your philosophy professor at USF. Postmodernists actually built buildings. And if you look at the buildings, they're really ugly. They're really ugly because they're like, well, life is ugly, so we want to build ugly things. Here's, here's my point in all of this. Sometimes the buildings that we build are not just about keeping the rain out and the wind at bay. Sometimes they reveal something about the world that we live in. And the reason that I say all that is because we'll be in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of 1 Kings, and it's this very in-depth, detailed description of the type of temple that Solomon builds for God in Israel. This is what he's been charged with as the son of David to construct a house for the name of the Lord. And the temptation as we come to these passages is going to be to just let our eyes kind of glaze over and view this like a really long portion in Leviticus about um, different laws and things like that, or to let our eyes glaze over and see this as just like a really long genealogy. And ah, this is interesting if you're trying to draw a picture of the temple, but it's actually not really communicating anything important. And and what I want to kind of say up front is that the reason why the Bible goes into detail about the construction of the temple is because the temple itself is saying something without words about the depth of what people long for in their hearts, and it's ultimately saying something about the shape of the gospel. And so with that in mind, let's come to the first of our three texts for the evening. This is 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. We're told that Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he had heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. Solomon sent a word to Hiram. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune, and so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David, my father, your son whom I set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, I command, or now, therefore, command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My servants will join your servants. I will pay you for your servants' wages such that you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. So, If we're going to build a building, uh, there's two sort of preliminary steps that need to happen. The first is that you kind of need to have a plan of how to build a building. I guess the the preliminary step before all of that is you need to know how to build a building. Uh, And then you need to plan what sort of building you're going to build. And then you need to gather the resources. There are very few people who can bear grills it and just look at a pile of mud and be like, this is going to be a mansion when I'm done with it and just set their hands to work. 
So we aren't given sort of privy into Solomon's planning process as he sort of figures out what the temple is going to look like. We kind of jump in and he already knows this is what it's going to be and here's what I need. He begins to gather resources, but he doesn't gather the resources from Israel, at least not all of them. He, he doesn't just say, hey, go cut those trees down outside of Jerusalem and we'll, we'll work with those. Uh, he sends word to a Gentile king, Hiram, who is the king of Tyre. He says, bring me the cedars of Lebanon. And in the ancient world, the cedars of Lebanon are kind of like this wonder of the ancient world. They're, they're known for being strong and durable. They're these things that are majestic. They're, they're the sort of thing you would build something really important out of. And so he sends word to this king. The king, we're, set, we're told in verse 7, rejoices greatly and says, Blessed be the Lord this day, who's given to David a wise son to be over his great people. He sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you've sent me. I'm ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress and timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon. I will make it into rafts to go by sea to, place, uh, to the place that you direct. I will have them broken up there and you shall receive it and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with the timber, the cedar, the cypress he desired. Solomon gave Hiram 200 cores of wheat as food in the household and 200 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. The Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, the two of them making a treaty. So Solomon is beginning to gather what he needs for the temple. But he's not gathering it from Israel. He's actually reaching outside of the boundaries of Israel to this Gentile king and saying, hey, I would love your help with building a temple for the God of Israel. And he responds, that sounds like a great idea. I would love to help with that. Here's everything that you've asked for. Here are the resources you've asked for. Here are the, here's the manpower that you've asked for. And so they get to work. They cut the cedar. They cut the wood. We're told that there are men from the city of Gibal who are also cutting the timber and the stone. And so here's what you have. For the Jewish person reading this, they're not looking at this and saying, this is kind of an interesting historical tidbit. Sure did wonder where that cedar came from because I haven't seen it outside anywhere recently. They're looking at that and they're saying, there's people from Lebanon, there's people from Tyre, there's people from Gibal, there's people from all of these surrounding Gentile nations. They're coming together, these nations of the world, and they're building this important structure. That sounds familiar. That sounds like Babel. That sounds exactly like the Tower of Babel where the nations of the world come together to build something. But there's a difference here. There's, there's a, an inversion of Babel that's happening at the temple. Because at Babel, the people say, let us make a name for ourselves. Hey, let's come together. Let's build a really cool building that's going to show everybody how wonderful we are. But at the temple, Solomon and these men from the other nations say, let's build a house for the name of the Lord. At Babel, the people gather together and they say, let us ascend into heaven. Let us build a tower all the way up to the heavens. And at the temple, Solomon and these Gentile kings say, let's build a place that God can dwell among us here. Babel stands sort of as this monument to human rebellion and arrogance. But what the temple shows us is that God's desire is not to scatter people. But instead, it's to gather them from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and gather them around himself. And in case you're wondering, this is why we as a ministry send people to Scotland. 
like we'll do next week. This is why we as a church send people to Uganda and to uh, the, the continent of Africa. This is why we, we have people in our ministry, leaders who go to the Middle East to these unreached people groups because we see throughout the narrative of Scripture that God's desire is to draw people from all corners of the world around himself together for the sake of his glory. We see this in the temple as the people are gathered together. We're not just told where all of the sort of resources come from in the building of the temple, but we're told what the temple looks like in excruciating detail. Now, I already told you, like, pay attention, don't fall asleep, but I'm telling you, if you do want to fall asleep, this is a great way to sort of, like, naturally lull yourself off because it is all sorts of detail that you never knew you needed to understand what something looked like. It's kind of like J.R.R. Tolkien's writing. I'm sorry. And so we're told in... Chapter 6, in graphic detail, what the temple looks like. And we can't walk through all of it, but let's look in particular at chapter 6, verses 18 through to 28. We're told this, that the cedar in the house, the house being the temple, was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. He drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary. He overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold, lots of gold, until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with, you guessed it, gold. (laughs) The inner sanctuary... He made, in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high, five cubits in length of one wing. Uh, the Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from one, the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherubim also measured ten cubits, both cherubim having the same measurement and form. The height was ten cubits. He put these cherubim at the innermost part of the house, that is the holy of holies, and the wings of the cherubim spread out so that the wings touched one wall, and the other wing touched the other wall. And just for good measure in verse 28, he covered them in gold. <laughs> I, I often have, um, I guess I'm not really joking, but I act like I'm joking when I say that Baptists build bad buildings. Um, I'm not joking because Baptists do, in fact, build bad buildings. Uh, If you've ever been to a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or an Anglican church, uh, they shame us in their architecture. But it wasn't always that way among Baptists or among Christians in general. You know, if you go to, to Europe and some of the ancient cathedrals or you go to even some of the older churches or just the well designed churches in our country, the choices that they make about the way that their space is structured. It's not primarily just based on what looks good. It's not like, wouldn't this stained glass window look lovely right here? Although there is something of that. But the way that they structure their place of worship is meant to communicate something about who God is and what he's done and what he's doing. So you'll notice old churches often have red doors entering into the sanctuary. It's because the blood of Christ is the means by which we enter the people of God. You'll notice that in many old Protestant churches especially, the pulpit sits at the front and the center of the space. Why? Because the most important thing that the people of God do when they gather is that they hear from him through his word preached. 
You'll notice if you hop in a helicopter or an airplane and look down on one of these cathedrals that they're built in the shape of a cross. Why? Because the people of God are a people shaped and formed by the cross. The point being that the space in which people worship sometimes is meant to communicate something about why they worship and what they hope that God will do. And it's the same with Solomon's temple. He's not just drenching stuff in gold because there's a surplus in Israel and he's just trying to get rid of it. Pay attention again to the way that this building is structured and what the Jewish person would have thought when they walked into it. They walk into this massive temple and it's covered with pictures of flowers, pomegranates, palm trees, gourds, fruits. Not just that, there's gold everywhere. And the rest of the Bible, as you kind of read the other descriptions of the temple, you begin to recognize that the temple is facing to the east. The Jewish person, seeing this, their mind would have gone in one direction. The words of Moses, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight for, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havela, where there is gold. Solomon's not just building a room to keep the rain out. And he's not just decorating this room with gold in the interest of keeping things shiny and entertaining. Solomon is building a garden of Eden in the middle of Israel. The people of Israel walk in. There's palm trees. There's flowers. There's fruit trees. There's gold. It's facing east where Eden was. This is sitting at the middle of Israel, this garden of Eden. And Solomon does this because he recognizes that at the heart of every human, the deepest longing that we have, whether we know it or not, it is to return to this paradise that was lost. It's to be restored to the presence of God that was withdrawn when Adam sinned. You know, there's, there's an interesting thing that happens when, when relationships end. Um, the sort of things that you thought were, were beautiful and appealing and attractive when you were in love, they sort of become tombstones. Uh, they become monuments to pain that weren't there before. So, a um, bit of advice from somebody who's not really good at giving advice in relationships. Um, don't make your couple song your favorite song, <laughs> because if it ends, you may not get that song back. And what I mean by that is that the memories that become bound up in it and tied to it are going to taint it in a way that might not be retrievable. Um, another bit of advice, if you're going to break up with somebody, don't do it in your favorite coffee shop or your favorite park uh, or your favorite restaurant. Um, they might haunt that place longer than you think that they will. Uh, these things that you once loved are going to have this sort of atmosphere about them that changes the way you think about them. And so for Israel, they're, they're stepping into this temple that's sort of reminding them of the Garden of Eden and this thing that's beautiful and, and compelling and challenging. But in the middle, right before they step into the room where the presence of God is, the Holy of Holies, there are these two towering statues of cherubim. 
that for the average person would have been beautiful and, and look how lovely this architecture is. It's covered in gold. Who would have guessed? But it's not beautiful for the people of Israel because the two cherubim are the guards that God placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden so that Adam could never return to the presence of God. And so the people of God are stepping into this temple that reminds them of what they lost. And at the center of it are these towering reminders, you can never really go back. In some way, the way is shut. The priest can enter the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is. But even then, he can only do it once a year. And even then, he's risking his own life. If there's any sin in him when he enters the presence of God, he's going to die. Here in the midst of the temple are these towering reminders that the temple itself won't be enough to bring the people of God back to him. God speaks to Solomon in the midst of him building this temple. And that comes in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. We're told that the word of the Lord came to Solomon, and he said this concerning this house that you are building If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. I will dwell among the children of Israel. I will not forsake my people, Israel. So God appears to Solomon. Actually, appears is probably too strong a word. We're told that the word of God comes to Solomon, whether that's in a vision, whether that's in a dream, whether that's in a text message, however it is that God speaks to Solomon, he speaks to him. And he makes this covenant with him. He says, listen, if you are a good king, if you're a faithful king, if you keep the commandments, I will dwell among you in this house that you've built for my name. I will be in your midst, but it is conditioned on you being faithful. Can I just say that as you trace the narrative of Scripture, this desire of God to dwell amongst His people is on almost every single page. You see it in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, that God walks with Adam in the cool of the day. You see it again after the Exodus, that God dwells among the people of Israel in the tabernacle and as a pillar of fire by night. You see it here. It's his promise to Solomon. I will dwell among you if you will just be faithful. If you will be a faithful king, I will dwell in your midst. By chapter 7 or 8, the temple is done. And God makes good on his promise because Solomon is holding up his end of the deal and being a faithful king. And the presence of God fills the temple in in the form of this cloud that's so dense that the priests can't even enter. But then Solomon fails as a king. The king after Solomon fails as a king. The king after the king after Solomon fails. And again and again and again the kings fail until finally Israel is split in two. And one portion of the nation is carried off into slavery. The temple remains, but finally that portion of the temple falls until about 300 years after all this takes place, Ezekiel receives this vision, and in his vision, he sees the presence of God leave the temple. God's gone from Israel. He's not there anymore. They build a new temple, and God doesn't come back. Oh my goodness. I hope they're okay. (laughs) 
So they build a new temple after the presence of God has departed, after the old temple is torn down, and God doesn't come back. But they hope, and they hope against hope against hope. 400 years of silence, and God does not return to the people of Israel. His presence never rests on the temple. He doesn't come back. But there's this hope. It's the hope of the prophets. One day, one day, he will dwell among us again. It's not until John picks up his pen to begin his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's two things throughout the history of Scripture that keep God from dwelling among His people. The first is their sin. The second is the faithlessness and the sinfulness of their leaders and their kings. And at the cross, God deals with our sin by judging it in the person of Christ. And in the resurrection, Jesus becomes our King who will be faithful even when we are faithless. So that At the end of the Bible, the Gospel of John chapter 21, not the Gospel, but the the book of Revelation chapter 21, the angel says to John, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. Because what has kept us separate has been dealt with in the word who's become flesh and dwelt among us. And this is why uh, the text that Katie read for us in worship is so significant. Jesus says to the religious leaders, something greater than the temple is here. Something more important than the temple is here. It's me. Because Jesus is the true temple. He is God made flesh to dwell among us. He's the true high priest who makes atonement for our sin. He's the true sacrifice who takes away the judgment of God. He's the true king who's faithful when we're faithless. He is the way that we must walk and the door through which we must pass if we will ever get back to what was lost in Eden. Solomon's temple was never meant to terminate on itself. In many ways, Solomon's temple is a tombstone reminding us of what we lost and begging for resurrection. Solomon's temple is meant to point to the one who is greater than the temple, who will bring us back to the presence of God so that he might dwell among us.